name is Tanner Turley. I serve as the lead pastor of Redemption Hill. And uh, if you uh, grabbed one of the worship guides, we're handing one of those on the way in. We'd love for you to just fill out that connect card really briefly. Or if you want, it's even easier maybe for you to go to rhc.church forward slash cc. And you can just fill that out online and we'll just connect with you uh, later this week. Thanking you for joining us. And uh, also, um, Hopefully, when you receive the worship guide, you notice this, uh, this card uh, that we're going to start utilizing over the next month that highlights kind of our journey toward Easter. Uh, we always say that Redemption Hill is nothing apart from the grace of God, and we're nothing apart from the power of God uh, working through prayer. Uh, so this is just a little tool to remind us of some great opportunities coming up this Easter. Uh, there's going to be a Good Friday service that we're going to be a part of at Faneuil Hall. Um, in downtown Boston. So a great opportunity to bring a friend uh, who uh, may be new to Christianity or not so new. Um, a great, great opportunity to be in a unique environment there, space uh, to, to experience the good news of Good Friday. And then uh, also we'll have an Easter egg hunt that Saturday before Easter at the Andrews Middle School starting at 1. And, and then, of course, Easter Sunday is a huge Sunday, as you know. Uh, so many more of our friends and neighbors are, are maybe more open uh, to the things of, of God and the claims of Christ during the Easter season. Uh, so I'd really encourage you, take this card and maybe jot a few names down of people that you care about uh, that, that perhaps need a relationship with, with Jesus or, or maybe to connect with a healthy church. Um, we'd love for you to use that just as a tool. Well, uh, this past week, my wife and I uh, got to go on a, a vacation with some of our closest friends, um, and we had a, a great time. You may have noticed I got, don't be envious, okay, I got a little bit of sun, you know what I'm saying? It was nice, it was warm, even short sleeves, I'm not trying to rub it in right now. I know it was a little warmer in Boston too, so maybe you can feel a little less envious. Uh, but, but we had a great trip, very, very relaxing, ton of quality time. Uh, with Marcia, ate some good food, and just, you know, just, just relaxed a lot. Read a lot, prayed a lot, and hung out with Marcia. Well, uh, on our way back, uh, we, were, we were glad to be coming back to Boston. Um, we were uh, in the airport sitting at the gate. We had to get up at 4.30, by the way, to catch this flight. And so we're sitting at the gate, and you know how it goes, you know, the, the, the you know, workers in the airline, you know, call the seats by number. And so, you know, we had just sat down. I'm about to, you know, break into my breakfast. And um, they, they call our number. Something, okay, here we go. You know, grab my, grab my belongings, you know, a bag, check, um, coffee, check, uh, key lime pie, which was my breakfast. Thank you very much. All right. I'm off the diet. Yes, I am. Um, check. And, uh, and my wife, you know, check. So here, here we go. You know, we're, just, we're going on the plane. And, and then about 10 seconds later, I get a tap on the shoulder. And this guy, like I don't know, says, you know, hey, does this belong to you? And I said, yes, yes, it does. That's, that's me. Uh, and thank you very much for seeing that I dropped my wallet and for bringing my wallet to me. So I did just kind of, I was just, you know, not even worried about awkwardness at that point, just fist bump, you know, gave him kind of a man hug. Uh, about 30 seconds later, I went back over to him to thank him again, you know, for just acting with integrity. And, and life was, you know, life went from being really bad uh, yesterday to being uh, really good and was feeling really good about it as I was, you know, then moving down the, the jet gate. Uh, that was until I looked at my wife, um, who through her tired eyes was kind of giving me this look like, I want to say something to you about being irresponsible, but I'm, I'm trying not to say something to you about being irresponsible. And so when I, when I see this look from her, all of these thoughts start flooding through my, my mind, right? Like, hey, it's 4.30. You know, I'm not on my A game. Give me, give me a break here, all right? It's early. Um, what about my, my hands were full, you know? Like someone else could, could have helped me out with, with that wallet, you know, so big, heavy. Um, you know, uh, what, what about, I hate having stuff in my pockets, which is true, which is why it wasn't in my pocket, because I, sometimes if I'm going to sit down, I don't want it to be in my back pocket. I'd rather, you know, hold it or put it somewhere else. Um, or just maybe, I'm still in vacation mode, you know what I'm saying? Like, give me a break, we're on vacation here, like just, but, you know, none of those would have went over very well with, with Marsha, you know, and, and thankfully, thankfully, I, I didn't use any of those excuses to, you know, justify my, my actions. Pretty, pretty smart guy, huh? And, and so, so thankfully, thankfully, I, I managed to escape uh, losing my wallet yesterday, and I managed to escape the constructive criticism of my wife, because if I would have said any of those excuses, um, I would have probably gotten a couple of, you know, earfuls 
that moment and then later in the day and then probably, you know, later in the day as, as well. So, so I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but, but oftentimes I'm not so wise. You know what I'm saying? Like when I am given some measure of criticism, what I want to do is fire back with reasons why I should be let off the hook for my stupidity and irresponsibility, right? And so we all uh, make these attempts at self-justification, right? I mean, you know, um, it, it's, been, it's been a bad day. Um, I, I wouldn't be so mean to people if I would have gotten a good night's uh, rest last night. I'm, 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 not, I'm not on my A game, but I'm not as bad as them. We are all experts in the art of self-justification. You could say we are all Picassos in the art of self-justification. And that is what's going on here in John chapter 8. What we're going to see is that Jesus makes one of his uh, massive claims again that, that is, is on the one hand very encouraging to those willing to receive it, but to those who were unwilling to receive it, they find it incredibly offensive and it sets them off onto this uh, course of self-justifying their rejection of the words of Christ. And so uh, here's what I want to do today. I'm, I'm going to read the first couple of verses just to kind of set the context of what's going on here. And then we're going to kind of work backwards in a sense where we're going to look at the response to what Jesus said, and then we're going to come back to see what he said and dive down into that, okay? Um, so, so I want us to think about this, this uh, idea of finding freedom through the word of Christ and, and whether or not we find freedom hinges on the reality of whether or not we're willing to accept what he is offering to us. So, so look, at, look back at uh, verse 30 of chapter 8. We'll start there because it sets the context for what's coming, where it just says this. As he was saying these things, you remember from last week, perhaps, if you heard it, if not, it was, it was Jesus making this claim, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so many, again, knew that he was claiming to be divine, knew that he was claiming to, to have the exclusive uh, way to God through his word and teaching. And so many rejected him, but in verse 30 it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in, in him. So now verse 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is, is saying to those who would follow him, Hey, listen, my truth will set you free. So what you need to do is you need to abide in it. You need to continue in it. You need to dwell in my truth, my words, and in my words and way you will find freedom. But not everyone wanted to hear this. And so verse 33, there's a a group of people that, that speak up. It seems to be a different group than who Jesus is speaking to in verse 31. And they say this, they answer him, we are offspring of Abraham. We uh, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And so Jesus here, uh, with these words about he has the power through his message to set people free. It sets these antagonists off to his message and they immediately start to, to basically uh, justify themselves as to why they're not going to follow the teaching of Jesus. 
And so they, 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 they start off on this kind of rant of self-justification. That's the first encouragement I want to give us this morning, that we need to recognize our unending quest for self-justification. It happens in little moments like losing our wallets, being criticized maybe for the way we drive. Yes, that happens when I'm behind the wheel too. Um, but, but bigger moments as well. Like, why did you make that decision that's going to affect the next year of your life? Or is the way that you're thinking about not only this life, but the life to come, like, is that accurate? Are you, are you, really, are you really convinced that that is the way, or is there a better way? Jesus is saying there is a better way, and it comes through my words, my teaching. And so when, when he sit, says this word about um, finding freedom through uh, him, they, they immediately respond in verse 33, and they say, look, what are you talking about us finding freedom, right? Because we are, we are the offspring of Abraham. We, are, we, are, we belong to the man of faith, Abraham. And so immediately what they do is they, they turn to their cultural identity, and they say, look, we're, we're, we're good, we have all that we need because we belong to the father of our nation. We, we are the descendants of Abraham. To, to use kind of uh, the, the language that we uh, are accustomed to in New England, uh, for these people, rather than saying, like, I don't see it clearly, I blew it here, I need to realign my life, these, these leaders are just saying, like, I'm all set. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm, I'm all set with that. I, I've, I've got what I need. Um, and my cultural identity backs that up. And so you know that people are accustomed to doing this today as well, right? We, we, we say, you know what, like, like um, my, my family, they really like follow God. And, and you know, like my, my mother, she's like a woman of prayer. And like my, my grandmother and my grandfather, like they're, they're really devout. They always go to church. And so there's this kind of idea that because of our like spiritual pedigree or our cultural identity, that we can kind of ride on the coattails of other people who have gone before us, not, not maybe Abraham necessarily, but, but others in our lives. And so, you know, like because I'm kind of connected to them, I'm okay. And Jesus would just push back against that and say, like, it's not your cultural identity that's going to make you acceptable before God, but it's, it's who you are before him in your heart. And so um, we just need to hear, like, going to churches is not enough. Putting a Christian or a Catholic on your a census registration, uh, that's, that's not enough. Saying a few prayers is not enough. Knowing a lot about the Bible is not enough. Wearing a religious symbol around your neck or tatted, tatted on your skin, it's, it's not enough. Our cultural identity is not enough to, to get us in it, into a right relationship with God. And I, I fear this as a pastor. Like I fear this as someone who often will stand here most weeks and, and, and share God's word with, 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 with you is that sometimes there is this, this hidden assumption that like because I sacrificed some time on Sunday, unlike maybe some of my other you know, peers, that just showing up for a couple of hours once a week or once on occasion is, is like now I'm acceptable before God. As someone once said, like a, fasc a fascination with the moon or the stars doesn't make someone an astronaut, Right? Going to the garage, like hanging out in a garage a couple of times a week, that doesn't make me a mechanic, right? I don't know the first thing about cars. I couldn't, I couldn't fix your car if my life depended on it, if your life depended on it. We would just be in a lot of trouble, right? And the same is true with this kind of mentality. Like, I go to church, like, yeah, I say, I say a few prayers. I'm all set with God. That's, that's not going to be enough. What counts is being set free by the truth of Jesus. And, and then in the, the, the verses 41 through 47, we see a, another reality, not cultural identity, but our moral lifestyle. Look at, look at what they go on to say in verse 41, uh, where Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. And they answer back, and they make it really personal here, uh, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the the exchange is getting quite personal, and and it almost, it it certainly feels tense, right? I mean, there there could have been, you know, kind of the temperature rising both in the heart of Christ, not in a a kind of sinfully angry way, but in in a, like, frustration with these people are not hearing what I'm saying, and they're not of God. They're not showing that they belong to God, and then these these Jews who weren't buying the words of Christ were then moving from um, self-justification through their cultural identity and and kind of degenerating down to personal accusation, saying, look, you're not as moral as we are because you you were born illegitimate. Like they had heard that, that Mary conceived of, of Jesus before she was legally married, right? And so, and so um, they were, uh, this, this, this rumor was, was swirling around Jerusalem. And now they're, they're bringing it against Jesus saying, look, we're not illegitimate like you. We don't have enough immoral, uh, you know, uh, background like you. Surely we are more morally superior than, than you, and this is another effort that we make at self-justification. There is this thought that surely we are on God's side because we have this sense of morality about us. That we, we know we aren't perfect, but we try not to be that bad. Like we're kind of, you know, better than most of the people around us. So surely, you know, that will kind of earn us a, a, a right standing with God because after all, like what we're trying here, we're like we're trying to make sure that kind of our good deeds are kind of outweighing our, our bad deeds. And so surely God will accept us because of that. And so if, if, that's, if that's you, like I believe it's most people that I talk to in Medford who have never really heard the gospel, let me just give you four problems with that mentality, Okay. Number one, to to assume that we could be good enough to kind of earn our way to something that can never be earned, only given and received as a gift, it points out four things. Number one, it, it fails to realize that God's, it fails to recognize God's holiness and perfection and glory. All right, so, so just, just listen, if, if, you, could, if you could peer into uh, the perfections of God, if you could see how holy and blameless and pure God is, you would realize that, that not even a speck, and our lives are riddled with specks, right? Not, not just specks, like blots and stains of, of, of our imperfections before God. Like if we could just see that not even a speck is, is entering into the presence of God because he is that holy, and, and our, um, our sinfulness demands that we be separated from him, then we would begin to realize that, that we, no, we can't be good enough, which leads to the, the second problem. It fails to realize uh, our sinfulness, just how, just how riddled with wrongdoing we are. We, we don't think like God wants us to think. We don't uh, desire what God wants us to, to desire. We don't do the things that God wants us to do. And even when we do them, we often don't do them for the right reasons. We aren't loving uh, things and being driven by the proper motives as, as, as God would want us to be. And so you can just look at the two greatest commandments. Like if Jesus says, like, if you just want to like sum everything up and you can just kind of boil them down to these two things, like how about love me 
Like with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, those are qualifiers there, okay? Love God with everything you have and then love your neighbor like you love yourself. And I'm just saying like today, I'm blowing it somewhere on that scale. And every day we are not measuring up. We don't see the magnitude of our sin before God. Here's, here's another thought. Um, this also fails to recognize common grace. We talked about this a little bit last week. So, so common grace recognizes that God makes everyone with a sense of morality. So we all have this moral compass we call a conscience. We all can differentiate from right from wrong to, to, a, to a large degree. And so what we assume then is because I do some apparently good things that that makes me good and therefore acceptable to God. But I love what Augustine said in his uh, book, The Confessions. It's like a spiritual autobiography of, of his, his life and how he uh, came to Christ. And this is what he says in his, in his early years as he was seeing these, these things around him. Uh, this is what he said. He said, I had my back to the light. I mean, just picture this, this imagery. I had my back to the light and my face toward the things that are illuminated. So my face by which I was enabled to see the things lit up was not itself illuminated. You see that? So in other words, Augustine could see the good things around him and God's, God's goodness falls on everyone on the planet, not just those who love him. And so we experience good things and we even have a, a capacity for good to the degree that, that it can be good because if we're not really doing it for, for God, how good is it, right? But, but we assume like because maybe, you know, we, we try to be kind to people, and we try to do some, some good deeds, that then that makes us acceptable before God. But, but even that common grace is evidence that God is and that, that God wants to give us more than what we're currently experiencing. And so number four, then, then let's just consider this. Not only does it fail to recognize God's holiness, our sinfulness, common grace, but this one is really, really important. This is really helpful to think about as we move toward uh, Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter, but it also fails to recognize the reason for the cross. So let me just think about this. If you are, are coming before God with this, this idea of, man, I'm, I'm okay, I can be good enough, my moral lifestyle will, will welcome me into your presence, then let me, just, let me just ask you this, like, why did Jesus die? Why, why did Jesus Christ suffer on a Roman cross? Was it not for our sin? Was it not because the holiness of God demanded that, that the blots in our lives and our imperfections be cleaned up and forgiven and washed away by his sacrifice? So listen, we, we all, like no one, listen, no one wants to admit that they don't have it together. No one wants to admit, like, I've been living this way, and this way is not going to turn out very well, and so now I need to reorganize my life and, and turn it over. Like, if, if we've been living that way for, like, you know, 15 years, 25 years, 35, 45 years, like, that's a really tough moment to say, you know what, I've been thinking wrongly about this, and now I need to humble myself and change. But Jesus says that is actually the, the, big, the starting point, right? That, that is the, the, the entry point for us to receive the gift of God. Because just think, think about this. What were the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his most famous sermon? Anybody know? We would say the most famous sermon of Jesus is probably the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. That's the Sermon on the Mount. So, so the Sermon on the Mount, like it would probably be good for us to know the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he you know, spoke those words. And he said what? Blessed are the poor. And not just the, the physically poor, but blessed are those who, are, who have a, a poverty of spirit, like a poverty of heart. In other words, they see their need before God. They see that they don't have it all together. They see that they cannot be good enough. They see that, that it, it's not their, their cultural identity that's going to usher them into God's presence as acceptable to him. 
And so my hope for you today is that you're not trusting, you're not like resting in uh, kind of your, your, your background or your upbringing or even the apparent good things that you try to do to, to earn God's approval, but rather you are trusting in the goodness of Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross so that if you would receive that gift that he offers, you can have life and have it abundantly now and have it forever with him for the ages to come. That is what Jesus is talking about in these opening words when he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we need to to end our quest for self-justification by seeing our need for God. And then we need to receive the gift of God by receiving his words and consequently experiencing the freedom that he offers. And that's my second encouragement for us today. Experience freedom by dwelling in the word of Jesus. Let's read these these verses again. So good. Uh, John 8, 31 and 32 says this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you, let these words fall on your heart today. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus has a conditional statement. He, he says, look, if, if, you, if you're sincerely following me, if you're really in with me, like we understand this, right? Like a lot of people would say, like, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm in with Jesus. And yet... Jesus is saying, like, if you're really in with me, then you are going to abide in my word. The picture here is that we we would remain, we would, I love this picture, we would dwell in the word of Christ, the message of Christ, the teaching of Christ. What does it, what does it mean to dwell? I want to ask a few questions here to help us process these two verses. What does it mean to dwell. When you, when you dwell somewhere, this is pretty simple, right? When you dwell somewhere, you live there, right? When you, when you dwell somewhere, you stay there. Like, this is, this is where I live. This is, this is my home. This is my dwelling. And, and, and so we, we, we stay. We linger where we dwell. And so when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, he's, he's talking about his word having a place in our hearts, in our lives, where, our, where his truth, his word begins to characterize our lives on a daily basis, no matter what we're up to, no matter where we are, no matter who we're with, Jesus and his message are permeating our lives. And so it's the antithesis of what he says uh, in verse 37 when he says to these these people who are uh, antagonizing him, he says, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. This should have humbled them, right? I mean, this is the one. John, in the opening of his gospel, he introduces Jesus as what? The word, (laughs) The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So, so isn't, it, isn't it ironic in a, in a very sad and tragic way that the, the very word of God, the very maker of the words that we speak says, my words find no place in, in you. Which is very humbling for for, for me as someone who is attempting to speak the words that God has spoken in his word. Because what Jesus is like, this is the word of God, the eternal word, the maker of words. And he's saying, my words are going forth and they're not even hitting your heart. And so I I can be up here for 35 or 40, 45 minutes and my words can fall absolutely flat. If God does not show each one of us how much we need him. If God doesn't powerfully work and and take these words and then press them into our heart, 
and his word finds a place in our heart where we're receiving them and where we want to live on them and where we want to experience all the benefits that come from his word being in us. So this is why, this is why we like pray at 930, you know, for these few weeks leading up to Easter is because like we can roll into Redemption Hill on Sunday and honestly like nothing can happen. Have you ever had a Sunday like that? Yeah, me, me too. Kind of go through the motions. Kind of like show up, sing a few songs, like hear a sermon. Oh, that was all right. But you know, it was good. Like, good job, Pastor Tanner, you know. And, but then like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like our, our lives really don't, they're not changed. So we can, we can hear the word and not hear the word. We can, we can receive the word but not receive the word. If the word is dwelling in us, then it finds a place in us. To dwell in the word of Christ is, is to obey. It's to actually put into practice the things that Jesus says. So some translations will, will put verse 31 like this. The NIV says, if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples. The New American Standard would say, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples. This is, this is how we demonstrate that we belong to Jesus. Whatever Jesus says goes. Whatever Jesus wants from us, if he says, love your enemies, that hurts, right? I mean, that's like, that's not easy. Like, Jesus, can you make this a little easier for me? When he says, forgive people like I've forgiven you, when he says, love people like I have loved you, These are, these are weighty instructions from the, the word. And yet Jesus is calling us to live as he lived. His word dwelling in us, abiding in us. He, he even says to them in this awesome example, um, in verse 39, he says, if you're Abraham's children, you'd be doing what he did. So in other words, you would have the, the kind of faith that Abraham uh, had, not resting on your works of righteousness, but on the righteousness that God gives us by faith, all right? And then when God says go into an unknown land even, you would say like, God, my life is so completely yours that if you tell me to move to the other side of the world, man, I'm gone. Like, is, the, is the word in you? Like that. If God said, sacrifice that which is most precious to you, like, would you, would you do it? And I'm really tempted to go on a rant here about materialism and, and just comfort and all of the things that we, like, we just breathe this stuff. As, as American, sometimes, not all the time, and we're trying to push back against this at Redemption Hill, right? But, but like, Consumer Christianity, comfortable living. I mean, I want to look in the mirror here. Like, how much am I willing to sacrifice of, of, of what's in this wallet that the guy gave me yesterday? You know what I'm saying? Like, like am I willing? Like, oh, yeah, it's easy for me. Like, hey, look, here, here's, here's my bank card. Like, here, Venti. I'll go out to lunch again. What a friend. Won't buy theirs, but, you know. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to, like, we see it in, in Jesus. Like, sometimes he speaks words for the purpose of, like, jolting, like, kind of waking us up. And I need to be woken up by the word, right? Because sometimes his word is not, is not abiding in me. It's just kind of like, man, Jesus, like, that one sounds good. That part, mm, that's kind of tough. I'll follow you in this way, but like, like this part about, you know, like really serving people, like you serve them, like, man, I'm tired. If you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, if you hold to my teaching, if you dwell in, in my word, then you'll know the truth. The truth will set me free. So just ask the question, like, how do we dwell? How do we then dwell? Like Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, how do, you, how do we abide in his word? The words of Christ have been revealed to us in 
this book. And so I, I know you hear it a lot at Redemption Hill, and, I, and I'm sure, sure, you're like, man, here we go again. Like, I got that. Like, I'm all set. Like, you don't have to go there again. <laughs> but but let, me just, let me just ask a couple of questions really, really quick. Um, how, is your, how is your quantity of time reading the Word? Studying the Word. As someone once said, this is really helpful to me. Uh, read for breadth, study for depth. And we should do both, right? Like we should, we should read for long periods of time and we should read for short periods of time. We should, um, we should um, you know, uh, spend time like absorbing large passages of Scripture, even reading books at a time, which doesn't take that long. You can read the Gospel of John in probably about an hour, not, not, not a lot of time. Um, or uh, we can just take one verse and think about it over and over and over throughout a, a day or even a, a given week. So how much time are you reading the Word? How much time are you studying the Word? How much time are you spending listening to the Word? Not just on Sundays, but like there are some really good sermons out there, not only on rhc.church, you know what I'm saying, but like even other churches we could point you to and pastors that are speaking the words of God from the Word of God. What, what about meditation? What about, what about hiding the word in your heart, memorizing the word? Like, if, is, it, is it that precious to us? Like, you remember last week that Jesus says he's the light of the world. And if, the, if he is the light of the world, then the words that he speaks give light. And so there are terawatts times terawatts that are just shining from the word if we would but receive them. So, so I'm asking, like, are we spending quantities of time in the word? We need to look at that, but then not just the quantity of time, but the quality of the time. Once again, like it's, because isn't this, isn't this the way it is? Like, isn't, doesn't this show us our need for God? Like, we could, we could spend a week-long retreat reading the Bible, which is hard to imagine and, and, and not necessarily be changed by it. That sounds like such a radical statement. But once again, like, just go back and read that Sermon on the Mount that I was talking to, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is always talking about our hearts. He is always getting below the surface. He's, he's saying, like, when you pray, don't pray so that others can see you, but just get away, tuck yourself away, and, and make it be about really because you want to go to this one who is, oh, by the way, your father. And you have a close, intimate relationship with him. And it's about what he can see where no one else sees. That, that's what, that's what following Jesus is about. So we, we get to know Jesus through his word. And so I, I love this kind of framework. Right? I remember, like, I don't remember a lot of experiences like this, but I can remember I was uh, actually listening, listening to a sermon, and, um, and, and, and this was back in, in my seminary days, all right? So like grad school, you know, it's probably about 24 25, something like that, and uh, I was walking around the neighborhood, and God was, was teaching me about this kind of, I want to call it, I don't know how cool this is or how much, how sticky this is, but kind of like this, this, this kind of missiological spiral, all right? All right, so they, follow me here, all right? So, so we read the word to know God, right? We read the word to discover how God wants us to live, but it's not enough to just know the word. Because some people can have this encyclopedic knowledge of the word, but not really be living the word. So, so we're saying like it's not enough just to, to read the Bible, but we want to read the Bible and then do what it says. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who rather who hear the word and obey it. You know, like that's where the blessing comes. Like that's where life is like if you abide means not just you're hearing it, but you're living it. And so, so sometimes then even for us who who follow Jesus, we're, 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 we're hearing the word, and then we're, okay, like, I get that, like, now we need to live the word, but, but then we stop there. But Jesus says, to really, to really follow me is to receive my light, and you become light, and then you shine light, which means there are going to be times, all right, not that we're, like, walking, talking like preachers everywhere we go, but, but the question that, that I love uh, when I heard it was this, does the word of God stop with you or does the word of God spread through you? So this missiological spiral is one that we, we know the word and then we live the word and then we share the word. And we do it again and again and again and again and again and again. 
And the word abides in us and it changes us and it sets us free and it sets them free when they are also willing to receive. And now let's just talk about what the results are here because this is really important. This is really hopefully motivating. All right, if you're, the spirit isn't already taking the word and put it into your heart. Did I say put it in? That was a stutter, all right? It's put it into your heart. What should happen? All right, I love this. Look, look, look back. Let's break. This is, this is study, by the way, all right? We're like drilling down. Like we read, we had some highlights on 33 through 59, but, but we are studying verses 31 and 32. Um, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's, what, that's the way we want to be. Um, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What are the benefits? What are the results of dwelling in the word? There are two that I see here, all right? Number one, we come to a deeper knowledge of the truth. As we receive Christ's truth, we come to know how true it is in our experience. Did you catch that? As we, as we receive the truth of Christ and as we live the truth of Christ, we come to know how true it is. So Jesus says, as we abide, then we will know the truth. That, that's almost like paradoxical. Like, I've already, if I already know it, then how do I come to know it? But Jesus says, when you know it and you live it, you come to know it more deeply. So just think about this. Like, Jesus is the bread of life. As I come to Jesus and I spend time with him in prayer and in worship and, and hanging out with, with others who love him and their light is shining on me through them. Um, and as I'm, I'm reading the word, then, then as I come to know Jesus as the bread of life and I take him in and he sustains me and he energizes me and he delights me like good food does. Like that, that's the analogy. Then what happens is I come to know just how true that is and then I want more of him. So, so the Psalms put it like this. Um, Psalm 119, verse 100, I have more understanding than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I, I have more understanding than, than people who, who are 10 or 20 years older than me or 30 years older than me. Why? Because I, I actually do what your word says. Now, now, what's really beautiful is when you spend time with people who have followed Jesus for many years and not only are they chronologically older than you, but they are also very much spiritually uh, more mature than you are. Which is why we are and want to increasingly be a generationally diverse church. This is why our groups are so important. That, that when people come to my group, you know, like Pastor Tanner's group, I think most people would say, like, it's not just like what, you know, Pastor Tanner is saying and, and the other people who are kind of his age, but it's, it's what some of our more, uh, we call them seasoned, you know, group members are saying because of their life experience and because of their spiritual maturity in Christ. So as we come to know the truth and we live the truth, the, the, our experience of the truth goes deeper and deeper within us. But then that's not all. Not only, not only do we discover this deeper knowledge of the truth, we also receive freedom in life. And let me just say a few things here, right? Number one, God made you for freedom. In the very beginning, when God made the world and everything in it, and he made man and woman, they were perfectly free. There was, there was no restraint in their relationship God, with God. There was no uh, barrier in their relationship with one another. All of the relational friction that we experience in our relationships today, there was none of that in the beginning. But now our lives are characterized by restriction. Our lives don't operate the way, in the ways that we want them to. And so what Jesus says is that when you, when you abide in my truth, you will be set free. And this freedom is kind of two-sided, all right? There is freedom from and freedom for. 
Okay, and, and the picture that, that I get when I think about this is, have you seen like world-class athletes? All right, I know I'm like trying to get you to picture this looking at me, which is very not, much not helpful because I'm not a world-class athlete, uh, even though I used to shoot that three a little bit. Um, but, but just this guy right here, he looks a little bit more, you know, athletic than me currently. Thank you very much. Um, so he is running with his parachute on his back, right? He is running with the resistance of the wind, catching the parachute so that, that it helps him to train as he is trying to increase his strength, stamina, and speed. Now, what happens when the parachute is taken off? He's free to run, right? You can almost imagine a parachute with all of these different strings attached to uh, the chute itself. And, and, and if we just started to cut each of those strings, right, then we are more free to run faster and faster and faster. And so Jesus says, look, I came to set you free. Freedom from the slavery of sin and death. Sin is uh, treason against God. That's a very weighty definition of sin. Sin is missing the mark, not doing what God wants us to do. Uh, but sin also, check this out, this is, this is helpful, is disruption of shalom, right? It is, it is, if shalom is the way that God intends for life to be, then sin disrupts all of that and we don't experience life as God wants it to be because we have deviated from his plan. And, and Jesus would put it so strongly, he would say, whoever, this is a good translation, whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. And I know you're thinking like, man, I'm no slave of anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm, I, surely like, yeah, I do some, some bad things, but you know, like, I'm not a slave to, to sin, but, but that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, spiritually, we are enslaved. We are under the power of sin in our life. Though, even though we have the freedom of choice, we do not have freedom of, of the will to love and serve God. Rather, we love and serve the things that characterize our nature which is sinful apart from the grace of God. And so what we need is then the liberator to come in and to free us from this enslavement to, to sin and, and the consequences of death that come from that so that we can experience freedom for a life-giving relationship with God. So, so verse 35, what does it say? Um, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So now we have been set free from the enslavement that sin brings and, and, and the, the consequence of death so that we can be freed for this inheritance as sons and daughters of God. A life-giving relationship now with the God who made us, where now we uh, have new loves and new desires and new joys. As D.A. Carson says, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because what we ought now pleases us. We are now able to, to pursue that which is good and true and beautiful. We are now able, we are free to, to experience the shalom of God as he intends. So Jesus comes into a person's life. He sets us free from the slavery of sin. He gives us his life. This is why he's saying again and again, like, if you believe that I am, you are not going to die. And so he gives us the life that we've always desired to live through his death and his resurrection. So, so today, I, I, hope, I hope that you have experienced life in Christ. Because if you haven't, if you've, if you've sought self-justification through some other identity or some other way, Jesus offers you this gift today. But as you abide in his word, then you can know this freedom. Freedom comes through Jesus and his truth. So let me just, let me just end with this. As, as, as the story goes on, they, they, they say, look, we're, we're, the, we're the sons of Abraham. Um, you must not 
follow Abraham. He must not be about um, what Abraham was about. But, but listen to what Jesus says in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you aren't even 50 years old. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you seen Abraham if you're not 50 years old? And what does Jesus say to them? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the preexistent one. I am the one who, who is dependent on nothing but completely independent and completely life-giving to everyone who would receive my word. There is no doubt this is a claim to divinity because verse 59 says they picked up stones to throw at him that they might kill him. And so the opportunity for us is to side with the life-giver to experience freedom from sin and slavery, to experience freedom for life as God intends it for us. And so receive this word from Christ and be set free for everything that God wants you to be free for today and every day until we experience eternity forever, forever, forever with him. Let's pray. God, thank you for wallets that are found. Thank you for people that are found even more, including me, including all in this room who have heard Christ's invitation and been set free by his truth. And so, Lord, that's our prayer today, that for every person here, that they would experience this freedom, this this. We all face restriction in life. God, I pray that you would show us how we need to be free and that then we would come to you and we would be set free to experience all that you have for us in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. God, in our hearts that can be desperately wicked apart from your grace. God, we want to be free from that which holds us back from experiencing you and what you intend for us. So God, would you bring your freedom even now? Lord, would you make your word find a place in our hearts that we might run and run free with you and toward you and for you? We pray this all for your glory. Amen.